Well, it's nice to see everyone again. We're still, uh, now that this particular holiday has come and gone, we're in the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verse 12 through 25 today. And before we do that, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for Christ, uh, who did not remain in heaven, but came onto earth. He dwelt amongst us and walked amongst us and Lord God, showing us what it is to live by faith, what it is to um, draw near to you, what it is to speak to you, to pray unceasingly, to do all things well. We thank you, Lord, for his ministry and his example. And we pray, Lord, today as we look at the things that he did, that we would conform our lives to him, that we would be in season with him, that we would bear fruit in him, that we would look uh, to him to him to complete everything that you have begun in us. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So up to this point, there's been a great deal of mystery. Who is this man Jesus? Who is he? Where did he really come from? What is he really about? There have been people that he, he's told to be silent and to not share with anyone who he is. There, there are people who have asked questions, and instead of answering them straightforwardly, he's given them very, very cryptic answers. He's done some very strange things. Right? He's done some very odd things, some very astounding things, things that are very hard for his own followers to discern and to understand. And now, now he's come to Jerusalem his own people have, have heralded him as a king. They've, they've thrown themselves down before him. They've worshipped him and praised him as he's entered the city on a donkey. Jesus is fulfilling all these types and shadows in the history of Israel. He came at last to the temple, and what did he do? He went away. He went away, as it says, because he came too late. So now, now he's rising early in the morning and he's making his way back up to the temple. And what we're going to see, what Mark is going to show us is that there are some themes and words and ideas that he has been developing since chapter one that are now going to bear fruit. Fruitfulness is what this passage is all about. Mark has worked very hard <laughs> at front loading some of these uh, types and shadows uh, some of these words that we're going to be looking at today. And, and what we have to understand is, again, that Jesus is, is fulfilling the history of Israel. He's, he's done parabolic things already, right? When he was feeding the 5,000 with the bread and the fish, there were things that he was showing us from Psalm 23. When he was walking on water, he was showing that he's greater than Moses. When he's terrifying them out on the sea, right? <laughs> right? And they're terrified in the midst of the storm, and he's sleeping in the boat. We come to find out that he is more terrifying than the storm. There's all these things that he's been doing, and but he's not done. He's been painting little vignettes. Now he's going to start working on his masterpiece. And this is what we see him doing. And there are some very strange things. Strange things. Who is this man and what is he trying to tell us? He's hungry, it says. He's very hungry. He comes to a fig tree. It's not the season for figs. And so, like a petulant child, he curses it. Is that right? This is what some people think. What is Jesus doing in this story? And then he goes into the temple and he starts talking about robbers and he starts throwing tables over and he, and he, and he throws a little fit, it seems like. And if you, if you don't know what he's doing, it's very strange. It's very strange. Then they go out of the city and they see the fig tree is, um, in fact, withered. And then he, so what does he do? The only reasonable thing at that point, he starts talking about mountains. <laughs> 
And, and it's a very confusing passage. Partially the fact that we have all, I think, heard these stories so many times, right? I've, I've been in big uh, evangelical churches, and I've made jokes about how I'm going to go out in the hallway and start tipping tables over and making whips, and I think I'm being very Jesus-like. And that's not at all what Jesus was doing, right? This, we are petulant people, and, and when we see the things that he's doing, uh, there, there's, there was an apple tree when we were hiking, and I ate, I ate this apple when we were on the site because I'm so hungry, and it was disgusting, and I threw it down, and I said, curse you, and may no, no, no fruit ever come from you again. And I thought I was being, again, very, very Christ-like. But, but is that what is going on in the story? I, I, like, is so often the case. If we read through this too quickly, we don't dig a little deeper. The real meaning of it, the real um, important stuff that we all need to hear is going to just fly right by us. So let me read. I'm going to read in chapter 11. I'm going to start at verse 12. This is what it says. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. The fig tree is barren. The fig tree is barren, and it is out of season. Now, the story begins with a hungry Lord. The Lord Jesus is hungry. And I I believe that this shows both his humanity. It shows that he is a man who gets hungry. Uh, I'm, I'm curious here about exactly what occurred. They left the, where they were staying, so presumably did they eat breakfast, and he's like a hobbit, he's looking for second breakfast, or did he not get enough, or they were in a big hurry, or I'm not really sure why Jesus is hungry. It doesn't explain it. But what Mark wants us to know is that he is hungry. But like everything in the story, him being hungry, there's more to it than it appears. In the Levitical system of the temple, sacrifices were offered to God as a communal meal. God consumed the worshiper as the substitute animal was consumed into smoke by the fire of purification. So you lay your hands on an animal, you transfer your identity to it, you put it on the altar, it gets burned, it gets purified in the fire, and it becomes smoke and joins the the pillar of smoke that is the Lord God. The Lord is eating He's consuming you. He's taking you into himself. So the God of the temple is a hungry God, a hungry God. Right? Notice this is still true. Here we are every week, and what are we gathered around? A table in which there is a meal. We have a very, very hungry God. And what is he hungry for? He's hungry for worshipers. He wants people confessing their sins. He wants people coming to his altar and laying themselves down, and he wants to become one with them, and that is what he's hungry to eat. He's hungry to eat worshipers. And how hungry do you think Jesus is at this point? Right? All these chapters in Mark, how many real worshipers has he found? Okay, there is a great deal more going on here. Jesus is hungry. He is hungry. And so he's going to go up to the temple. But what is he going to find there? Is he going to have a meal? Is he going to find fruit? Jesus, of course, in the story, then turns to a tree. Right? He's hungry, he's walking along, there's a f- and there's a fig tree. But just the fact that it's a fig tree is itself a detail that is extremely important. Psalm 1 talks about the righteous man being a tree planted. Hosea chapter 9 and Jeremiah 24 both specifically speak of Israel, God's righteous nation, being a fruitful fig tree. 
So this is why, right, when Mark brings up details, which he doesn't often do, they are extremely important. So Jesus is hungry for worshipers, and he doesn't turn to just any tree. He turns to a fig tree, which represents Israel. This is what it says in Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. This is what God has already done. When, when God was hungry, the God who wants worshipers ate from a fig tree. And so Jesus is God amongst us, and he comes, and what does he want to eat from? A fig tree. The prophets frequently spoke of the fig tree and referring to Israel's status before God. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 25. Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. And this becomes a phrase that the prophets use. Sitting under God's, right, sitting under a fig tree in Israel is sitting under God's protection, God's covenant love, God's provision. So not only do the fig trees represent Israel, living under a fig tree represents God's love, God's protection, God's presence. So Jesus turns to this tree. What does he find on it? No fruit. The tree is covered in fig leaves. Again, this is not a random fact. We turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. The first tree that God ever planted in a garden was also covered in fig leaves. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Adam and Eve were fruitless in the garden, and what did they cover themselves with? Fig leaves. And so, right, here's Christ. He's looking for food. He turns to the, the tree, the tree that represents Israel because he's hungry, and what does he find on it? Fruit? No. Fig leaves. It's a fig leaf faith. If you go all the way back to the Gospel of Mark, what has Christ found in, in Israel but a fig leaf faith? All talk, no substance. All this zeal, but no real spiritual life, right? It, it has leaves. It has synagogues. It has a temple. It has the Torah. It has signs of life. But once Christ comes to eat of the, of, of the worshipers that he's expecting, there's nothing there. There's no substance. God the Father came to the garden and he found Adam and Eve covered in nothing but fig leaves. Christ has come to Israel and he has found her covered in nothing but fig leaves. Now, if you're tempted to think, well, man, that is a stretch. <laughs> it says right in the text that it's out of season. It's out of season, Mike. Aren't you making, a, aren't you making quite a lot out of, hasn't your typology gotten away from you a little bit? But season doesn't even mean what we think it means. See, Jesus has been talking about the seasons changing. Back in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says, the time has come. But the word there is season. The season has come. He has come, and so the seasons have changed. Again, in Mark chapter 12, verse 2, which we haven't gotten yet, gotten to yet, but he says, uh, the tenant's failure to produce the fruit of the vineyard at the harvest season. Later, he's going to use a parable about Israel failing, failing to produce the right kind of fruit at the right kind of season. Again, Mark chapter 13, verse 33, we're going to see. He says, be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that season will come. The barren fig tree represents the temple, and it is unprepared for the coming of its Lord. The feast of Passover is there, and the spiritual seasons of Israel are there, but they are not the seasons of God. The temple is out of season. 
the people of God are out of season. That's the problem, right? Here's this fig tree. The Lord Jesus is hungry, and it's not bearing figs, and you can use for an ex- as an excuse, well, it's not the season for figs. But this is the Lord God. The tree needs to get in line with the Lord's hunger. The temple of the Lord is out of season, right? Did they, were they expecting the Messiah at this point? Have they looked at Jesus and said, oh, yes, right on time? No, the question's been, who are you? Are you do you have a demon? Isn't your mom a whore? Where, where did you come from? Who are you? What are you talking about? Get out of here. You have nothing to do with Israel. He's been rejected from the very beginning. The seasons are not aligned. And this is because the way of man is not the way of God. And the very point is that the people who are supposed to be in season with God are out. They are out of season. Their lips are near him but their hearts are far from him, it says in Mark chapter 7, verse 6. And so what does Jesus do? What does he do? What does Jesus do when he finds a tree that's out of season? What does he do when he finds a tree that's all fig leaves, all fig leaf faith and no substance? He does what he's always going to do. And this is what it says. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, we've gotten used at this point to what they call the Mark and Sandwich. And so at this point, we realize, I believe, that Jesus isn't really talking about fig trees. He's not really talking about this, right, this poor shrub that he found between Bethsheba, or Bethsheba, (laughs) sorry, the town that he left, Bethany, and in Jerusalem, this poor little shrub isn't really the point, is it? And, And Mark makes a point that the disciples are there, and they hear what he says, and they see what he's doing. And then now, now what Mark is going to do is he's going to have them go back go back to the temple. But because Marcus structures these stories, he doesn't want to make it too easy for us. He wants us to work at this. He's going to come back to the fig tree later. And the fact that the fig tree story and a temple story and another fig leaf story tells us that that the two things help us interpret one another. The stories about the fig tree help us interpret the story about the temple and vice versa. Okay, And so at this point, we know that the story isn't really about the fig tree. It's, a, it's representative. He's teaching the disciples. When I want to eat, I expect you to be in season. And if you're not in season when I come, if you're not in season and full of fruit, when I come, I will curse you and you will bear no fruit. And no one will eat of you ever again. So the disciples, as usual, there's Peter and the gang, and they're standing around going, what in the world is going on? What does this have to do with anything? Jesus, you know, we got some bread in a backpack. If you're hungry, we can just feed you. So to make the point clear, because this is really who he's teaching is the disciples, Jesus leads them up to the, the temple, and then we read this story. And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astounded at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. What Christ found in his temple wasn't the fruit that Israel's ministry to the nations should have produced. 
What Jesus found instead is what gives the whole section its meaning. What he finds, what he finds is the thorns of robbers. Instead of the fruit of the righteous, he finds the thorn of robbers. Now, the word translated as robbers is, has made this passage very difficult to understand. Because, right, he's, he's money changers, people selling and buying, and then he talks about a den of robbers. And so, how, right, how many of you guys think this is about commercialism? This is about what are you doing selling stuff in my temple? What's with all this money? But this actually isn't what he's getting at. Not at all. See, the word that's translated as robbers has multiple meanings. Multiple meanings. The first one that we're all used to is what they call those thieves who beat and rob and steal and cast aside the man in the story of the Good Samaritan. Right? They find a man on the road. They're highway robbers. They beat him up. They take his stuff. They throw him in a ditch. Robbers. That sounds like a robber, right? There's plenty of them currently living downtown Seattle. This is the kind of thing that you find all the time. This is a robber. So when applied to, right, when they they say robbers and they're referring to all these people buying and selling, I, I think the connection generally we make is directly to them. But the problem isn't commercialism per se. Right? They're actually doing a service. You know how if you're traveling from a far distance and you've got to bring the right kind of animal, do you know how difficult that is? You know what's a lot easier is if you bring money and people provide the animals right there at the temple where you're supposed to buy them. Jesus' own mother did this. She bought the pigeons when she got to the temple when he was um, being dedicated. So the service that they're pro- providing isn't wicked in and of itself. Okay? If you're not allowed to take pictures of foreign gods into the temple, it's pretty helpful to have somebody there who's willing to change the money. That's not the problem. The problem isn't that they're doing this. The problem is that they are in the, what they call, they're in the portion called the court of Gentiles. Now, the court of Gentiles isn't supposed to be a market. <laughs> That's not what it's for. The court of the Gentiles, where these booths are all set up, is supposed to be where Gentiles enter in to the temple of God. It's supposed to be for them. They can't go any further than that. that, that the, the, the Gentile court is as close as they can get to the Holy of Holies. But could you imagine you're standing there, right? You've heard of this, this God, and you want to go up and you want to worship, and, you, and you're like, okay, well, how close can I get? Well, you can get as close to, to the, as this court of the Gentiles. And you think, oh, great. And so you go in there, but there's nowhere for you to stand because there's a bunch of money-changing tables. You're trying to focus on God. You're trying to pray to him. You're trying to learn something, but there's just people there buying and selling lambs. right? How, how, how easy would it be to worship in a place that smells like a stable? right? Or is Israel making it easy for the Gentiles to get close to God? No. No, they're not. And so what Jesus wants, what Jesus he comes to find fruit in the temple, and he's not finding it. And the reason is because the court of the Gentiles is a marketplace, barring the Gentiles from actually worshiping God. This is what it says of the temple in Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 through 8. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather 
yet others to him besides those already gathered. See, in Leviticus and Numbers, it explains how Gentiles can participate in the temple worship. They're allowed to. The court of the Gentiles was one of several courts attached to Herod's temple. Various measures were taken, however, to limit Gentile access to the actual temple. There used to be a wall that they couldn't get through, which is what in Ephesians Paul is talking about where it says that the dividing wall between Gentiles and Israel has been torn down. There's this outer section where the Gentiles can go. But again, like I said, how how easy is it for them? Is that a comfortable place? Is that a place, right? Think of how clean the Israelites keep the inner portions of the temple. Do you think they let lambs go in there and do their business? Right? Do you think they try to do prayer, praying over a bunch of cooing pigeons? Right? But the Gentiles, whatever, who cares? We'll sell stuff in their portion. They're not really, I, it, the, the further they are from this place, the better. See, in Isaiah, it, what's it, what it is explaining is the return of exiled Israel. Israel lost the kingdom. Israel lost the temple. They were cast out, remember? Their, their kingdom came to an end, and they were exiled to the nations. Like a bunch of seeds, they were scattered by God through the nations. And when they come back, when they came back after the Lord's anger was assuaged, and he calls Israel from exile back to the temple, what they are supposed to do is bring the fruit of their exile. They were supposed to be a giant net cast over the seas of the nations to drag the fish in. They, they were a people amongst the nations. And when they went out, what did they do? Did they go out and did they build schools and, and synagogues to instruct the nations in the true God and, and then when they were called back, bring all these people with them? Or did they go out and they built ghettos? And when they came back, they brought no one. Jesus is hungry for fruit. He's hungry for worshipers. And he's come to the tree. He's come to the fig tree. And what he's found, he was expecting all of this fruit. He was expecting a season of harvest. And he's gotten here, and there's no one there. And this is what he said. He said, it's white for harvest. He's looked out, on right? He's been wandering all over Israel. And what does he see? He sees that it's ready for harvest. He says, man, look at this. The harvest is going to be huge. Let's, let's go up to the temple and let's see all this fruit that they brought in. Right? Let's see all the work that Israel has been cast to the four winds and all that fruit that they were supposed to bring in. Let's go and get some. And he goes up there and he finds nothing. And so all of this is about symbolically bringing the temple to an end. Because it says, it says um, that he will not let anyone pass through to the inside. He's bringing the whole thing Right? To a screeching halt. He doesn't want this temple to be functioning anymore because it's not producing the fruit that it was supposed to be producing. What it is, is a den of robbers. Now, to understand this, what we have to do is look at Mark chapter 15, verse 7. I'll read it for you. It says, Among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Now, see, Barabbas is called a robber. Now, how many of you guys, like I have often thought, you hear that Barabbas is a robber, you think, oh, he was a pickpocket or something. But his sin is committing murder in the insurrection. 
He's a brigand, not a robber. He's a rebel, not a robber. Barabbas was a zealot, a brigand, a man bent on destroying Gentiles for the sake of Israelite nationalism. And the temple had become the hideout of Israelite zealots and nationalists. They were the people who didn't want to save the Gentiles. They wanted to destroy the Gentiles. The temple was supposed to be the place to gather the men, but what they use it for is a place to separate themselves from the Gentiles. Right? Now, who did they want? When Jesus was offered up, right? Pontius Pilate says, well, you know, I usually give you guys back one prisoner, so do you want your king back? And they say, no, 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 no. Give us the brigand. <coughs> give us the murderer. Give us the zealot. Give us the one who wants to destroy you. Jesus is just your friend. Jesus has made friends all over the place with all kinds of Gentiles. He said all kinds of crazy things about Jewish nationalism. Things that we can't accept. Things that we can't abide. That's why they reject him and they want Barabbas. Because their temple has become a den of brigands. It's the resting place of brigands. And we had read for us Jeremiah chapter 7 this morning. Now, if you want to know what section in the Old Testament lines up perfectly with this entire episode, is Jeremiah chapter 7. This is what it says, verses 4 through 11. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For you truly amend your, if, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not go after gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Because what you have are a bunch of Jews who believe that they are justified by the law. And so they go out and they say, well, we have the temple. We have the temple. We have the temple. And what are they doing? They're plotting to kill John. They're plotting to kill Jesus. And they're plotting to kill anybody who wants to preach any other gospel than the gospel they have. The good news of Jews. The good news of Israel. The good news of the temple. Forget all those nations. Forget all those Gentiles. We're going to destroy them. And Jesus has come and he says, listen. This is a house of prayer for the nations. I am, right, where's the fruit? And so he starts flipping tables over and he starts smacking things around and he starts shaking it up <coughs> because what he has found is not the house of his Lord, not the house of his Father, not a place of prayer, not a place of, of, of priestly ministry to the nations. And so what he's enacting is bringing it to a screeching halt. He's come here, and it's covered in fig leaves. There's no substance. There's no faith. Peter Lightheart says this. Jesus has come to the control center of Judaism. He is at the heart of the land, the heart of the people of God. The temple is the great symbol of Jewish election and Jewish history. The temple declares to the world, to the Gentiles, that Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, has chosen this small backwater people to dwell with, to make his own, to use as his instrument to put everything right. It declares to the world the history of the Exodus, the glories of Solomon, the reality of the restoration from Babylonian exile. Jesus comes to this temple and starts throwing around the furniture. He declares it a den of brigands, a, a retreat of petty criminals and mafiosos. 
Because what have we found so far? (laughs) They sent out scribes to talk to Jesus when he was on the road. They didn't like what he had to say, so they started a conspiracy to commit murder. That sounds very much like a mafioso to me. And so Jesus is declaring its destruction. This is why he's he's preventing them from worshiping while he's there. He wants this place restored. But it's not going to be restored. He's come too late, it says. It's out of season. A new temple is needed. This is what we then read after they've gone away. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken, da- uh, taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, wherever you a- whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you, ha- that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Mark eleven twenty. as they passed in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. It's not coming back. The tree is withered all the way down. Astounded, the disciples cannot quite comprehend the connection. By the word, a word from Jesus' mouth has withered this tree down to the roots. And they're just excited that, that they found it. They don't even really understand what it means. They're just, oh, Jesus, what is going on? Explain this to us. First, the mountains that Jesus mentions are not some generic typological metaphor for, for something hard to do. Right? This is how I've always used this verse. I mean, you know, my kids look at their bedroom and I tell them to clean it, and they're standing there because it looks like, you know, the size of Mount Rainier pile. And I think, hey, you know, if you, if you pray that, that you can cast this mountain into the ocean, God will, God will hear you. Right? I've counseled people with this. You have something really hard to do. Well, God said, you know, this sounds really impossible. It's like casting mountains into the ocean. So if you just pray to God, he will, he will do it. He will do it for you. Right? Because, right? That's what it seems like. Mountains seems like any really hard thing to do. But that's not, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus had just walked up the temple mount into the house of God and started tossing stuff around and disrupting its commercial and ritual practices. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father, at the place that David had appointed, on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. <clears throat> he says this mountain. He doesn't say a mountain. He says, you want to toss this mountain into the sea? Pray. Peter Lightheart, this is what he had to say about this. His disciples are amazed at the power of Jesus to cause this fig tree to wither. Jesus' response seems like a non sequitur. How did we get from fig trees to mountains? The key is to recognize that Jesus does not speak of mountains in general, but of this mountain. He and his disciples are on the western slope of the Mount of Olives, overlooking the Kidron Valley toward Jerusalem and Herod's magnificent still unfinished temple. From that vantage point, he tells his disciples that they can move this mountain, the Temple Mount, and have it tossed into the sea of nations if they ask in faith. Jesus confers on them the power to pass judgment on Jerusalem through prayer. 
they will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a reference to Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus tells the disciples, you will judge the nation of Israel. Right? And, and what do we see Peter and Paul and the other apostles doing? The, all through Acts. They're going into the temple and they're, and they're, right? they're preaching Christ. You read the book of Hebrews and what, what is that all about? It's about the fact that the temple is no, no mas. It does not matter anymore because the real temple has come. What, what Jesus is talking about here is the prophetic ministry of the church. Don't fear, don't fear the temple mount. But do the, do the apostles have something to fear? Are some of them stoned? Are some of them imprisoned? Right? Paul, how many times did they try to kill Paul? But what does he say? What does he say? Take up your swords? No, see, he's... he's <laughs> the Israel currently wants Rome, which is a giant mountain, to disappear. And so what are they doing? They're brigands. They go out and they murder people. And they steal stuff. And they commit insurrection. And what Jesus wants, when the church comes up against similar kinds of mountains, is not to run off and get a sword or a shotgun. But what he wants is you to get on your knees. And what, you, what he wants is for us to acknowledge that the mountain that's higher than all these mountains that we're going to face is his. That he will topple them. That's what he wants. He's telling us how to topple mountains. Now, and, and how did the church do? Where's Rome? Has anyone seen a Roman lately? Right? <laughs> China is learning very hard lessons right now about whose mountain is ultimately higher. Because the unrest there and the way that the Christian church is growing there and the ministry that, that the church is having in China is magnificent. They're toppling mountains. In the very beginning of Isaiah, which is a book that Mark has been quoting all along about Jesus coming and making clear paths, he makes clear paths because he topples the mountains that oppress us, the mountains that hold us down, the mountains of false worship. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, it says this. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amaz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. He's telling them, listen, you guys, you're going to come up against oppressors. You're going to come up against power that is hard to overcome. But you have to remember that as high as these mountains seem, the mountain that you worship on, the, the, the summit of it, the peak of it, is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But he warns them, because what he's telling them to do is imprecatory. He's telling them, right, to pray, to cast mountains down, to destroy nations that are against God. And he says, he says in Mark, he says to be careful about how you do it. If you have sin, confess it. If you have someone to forgive, forgive. Right? If, if how successful would Peter have been if in Acts he goes to the temple and instead of just declaring against it in, in a very general way, he's looking in the third row at a guy who threw a stone at him one time. How powerful would Peter, or Peter's ministry have been if it was that vindictive and personal? Right? The, the Romans, the Roman Christians that Mark is writing for, when he, he wants them to pray because they're being oppressed by Rome. What he doesn't want them to be is petty and personal. <laughs> when you're praying that God would topple the wicked government in this country, don't just focus on Nancy Pelosi. If you do, that's vindictive. 
right? Don't just focus on that guy at Alderwood Water who is a real jerk to you on the phone and is charging you too much for your water, right? When we are working against the evil in this world, when we're working against the oppressors of this world, it's not personal. And that's what Jesus wants them to understand. He wants them to understand this. Go out and declare the gospel against the power structures of this world that are false, against the false worship in this world. Get on your knees and ask God to topple these mountains. Right? This, this is the fruit that the Lord is looking for. This is the sacrifice that he wants you to be. He wants you to lay yourself on the altar and, and, and sacrifice your way, your will, and get in season with him. What is he seeking to accomplish in this world? What is he seeking for Linwood? What is he seeking for Washington? And we end this sermon much like we did the last sermon in Mark. When when Jesus was on the road, the blind man didn't let him get past him. The blind man knew it was Jesus, and he didn't let Jesus get away. He called out and called out and called out until Jesus came back and healed him. We learned the lesson from Israel. They didn't clean house. They kept putting it off and putting it off and getting distracted by idols and thinking it was about their kingdom and about oppressing this person and that person. And when Jesus comes, he comes too late. And what, what you have here is Jesus comes to the temple for fruit, and there's no fruit. There's just a figly faith, a fake hypocritical faith. The day of judgment will come, Paul says, to, to be ready in season right, and out of season. Jesus talks about the fact that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not looking for figly faith. In Matthew, he says that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Right? And then everybody starts getting nervous. Oh, my gosh. Now I'm going to look through my life, and I'm trying to find fruit, and I'm not finding it. I'm getting really nervous now because I'm looking at my own record, and it's bad. And that's fig leaf faith. Galatians chapter 5. Let me just read this to you, and this is what we're going to close with. Do you want to bear fruit for the Lord God? Do you want to be in season with God? I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger... Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Oh, see, there it is. That's the rub. Right? Because I want to go into the temple of the Lord and I want to bring my pleasures with me. Right? I want to get drunk on Saturday night and it's okay because I go to church on Sunday morning. I want to live however I right? I'll watch whatever I want to watch, whenever I want to watch it, do whatever I want, whenever I want to do it. But it's okay because we own some Bibles and sometimes I make the kids read them. Right? What we are comfortable with is fig leaf faith. What we're comfortable look is pointing to the fruit of our own life, our own outward spiritual life, and saying, see, see, I'm fine. Everything's fine here. 
<laughs> when what we're not growing in is patience and self-control, generosity, compassion, goodness. These are the things, right? This, and, and then if you're like me and you think, oh, goodness, oh, no, good. Because the only way to have the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that the Lord God is looking for, is getting in season with him. And the only way to get in season with him is dying to yourself and living for him, walking by the Spirit, not just coming here once a week and talking about the Spirit, but actually living every day, walking in dependence upon him. Fig leaf faith gets us nowhere. Right? There is not safety in numbers. In the sense, you can't just look around and be like, well, I'm surrounded by Christians, so everything's fine. Look at all those Christians in my co-op. Look at all those Christians in my church, right? People think of me, they think Christian, so I, I, it's good, it's fine. I got, I, got, I got everything worked out. Crucify the flesh with the passions and desires. You have to be putting that sin to death or it will be putting you to death. And we don't know when Jesus is coming. Right, <laughs> we're as clueless about it as the as the Israel was in his own day. They thought they had a lot of time. They thought, oh, we can right if we just go through the motions, we got this, we got plenty of time. And the next thing you know, Jesus is right there in their in their midst, and he does not like what they are up to. Be in season with God, and if you want to be in season with God, it's not the way of the flesh, and it's not the way of the world. It's the way of the spirit, spiritual things, praying. Reading your your Bible, dependent, being dependent upon the Lord Jesus. It's the only way to be in season and to be found fruitful. And this is what I pray that all, all of us, that we would lay ourselves down on that altar because the Lord God is hungry for worshipers. That we would not come here and use this, right? we have access to the throne of power. And are, are we using it to fill the court of the Gentiles? Or are we using the court of the Gentiles for our own purposes? Are we concerned about people outside of this temple? Right? Are we cast to the four winds in our, in our homes, in our various neighborhoods, and we're just built little ghettos? Right? There's a lot of outward stuff to look at. But, but look to Christ. Look to him. Be in season with him by, by pursuing him by the Spirit by pursuing him through spiritual things, by worshiping him the way that he has called us to worship him. And amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word and your son who has borne witness to us of what faithful covenant life looks like. I pray, Lord God, as we go from here, that we would not be morbidly introspective, that we would not, Lord God, look to our fig leaves, but that we would pursue Christ, that we would walk by the Spirit, that we would put to death things in our life that are putting to death our spiritual fruit. I pray, Lord God, that you would heal us, that you would give us hope, that you would, um, Lord God, fulfill your promises to us in Christ, that you would, we know that you will finish what you began in us, and we look to you to finish it. And I pray, Lord God, for everyone in this room that we would not take our eyes off you, but continue to pursue you and continue to get into season with you. And Lord... Jesus name we pray amen